Happy Sabbath. Good morning. It is a wonderful privilege to be with you this morning at Pioneer Memorial Church. Let's see my technology. Let me get set up here. All right. It is a privilege to be with you this morning to share my testimony because you see, despite growing up in the church, I was only heart converted nine and a half years ago. And at that time, if you had told me that I'd be here sharing my testimony this Sabbath morning, I would have said that you were crazy. But this is evidence of the grace, mercy, and transforming power of our God. And it shows us that there is hope for everyone, even those who grow up in the church. Amen. But before I get ahead of myself, would you please have another word of prayer with me? Lord God, our Father, hallowed be your name. Lord, I pray that as I share this testimony this morning, that it would not be my story, but Lord, that it would be the story of you through me. And I pray that these words would not only be comprehended, but that there would be conviction in each and every person's heart. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I'm a son of Korean immigrants. I'm an elder brother. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a former professional cellist, and I'm a corporate executive. Yet as important and defining each of these facts is to my identity, the most important and most defining fact in my life is that I am the survivor of a chronic and deadly disease. Millions around the world have this disease. It runs in families and is passed on through heredity. It is a silent killer. There's no known cure for this condition absent a literal miracle from the Lord himself. I am a survivor of congenital Christianity. Congenital Christianity is a spiritual condition which in some ways resembles true Seventh-day Adventist Christianity, but which is at its core superficial and lacks an authentic saving relationship with God. To make sure that we have a common understanding of this condition, I'd like to share with you a non-exhaustive list of symptoms. Would you like to hear the symptoms? Do you want to know what they are? Amen. One, you avoid talking about your faith because you don't want to have to explain it because you're a little bit embarrassed. Two, you know that Saturday's the Sabbath, but come on, what's the big deal? It's just another day. Three, you've heard that we have distinctive biblical beliefs about death, hell, and the sanctuary, but you're not quite sure what they are or why they even matter. Four, you hear people talk about the spirit of prophecy, but you're conflicted about it, even though you've never actually read any of the books. Five, those beasts on the prophecy seminar flyer look strange and bizarre to you, and you have no idea what it all means. Six, you think that megachurch down the street is way more fun, way more interesting. They've got a great band. They've got donuts. They've got coffee. They've got programs. You think that megachurch is way more interesting, 
but you feel a little guilty that you think that. Seven, you abstain from all unclean meats, except for pepperoni, bacon, and shrimp, because they taste so good. (laughs) And you abstain from all alcohol, Oh, except for just a little bit of beer and wine, but only socially. And the hard stuff, only when mixed with orange juice or cranberry juice, because then you can't taste it, and it's got vitamins. (laughs) You dutifully wait until after sundown on Saturday evening before you fire up Netflix to binge watch The Game of Thrones. You know who you are. Nine, you go out to lunch after Sabbath church service because surely God would not want you to starve. And what they've got at potluck isn't nearly as yummy as those garlic breadsticks. And 10, you go to church most weeks because you want your children to have exposure to the faith, even though you don't have any personal investment in it. These are just examples but they should give you an idea of what we're talking about. Does any of this sound familiar? Any of this sound familiar? Of course not you. Of course not you. This is PMC, Pioneer Memorial Church. This is the mothership. Of course not you, but perhaps a friend or family member or maybe even a church member. Well, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want first? The bad, I hear the bad, which is awesome because that's the way I wrote this. (laughs) The bad news is that untreated congenital Christianity leads to eternal death 100% of the time. The bad news is that while the disease is passed down, the cure is not. You cannot be saved by your parents' faith. And the bad news is that you must affirmatively choose to be cured. This won't just get better on its own. That's the bad news. But who wants the good news? Amen. The good news is that there is a cure, and I stand before you today as living proof. I testify to you that I have been cured by the love of Jesus and the power of the everlasting gospel. The good news is that if God could save a wretch like me, he can surely save you. And the good news is that it's not too late. It's not too late for you, even if you've been suffering under the lukewarm, putrefying malaise of congenital Christianity for years or even decades, God can still save you. He can still reach down from his throne and touch your heart and turn it from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I know that he can do this for you because he did it for me. My story begins three generations ago in the early 1900s when my great grandfather became the second ever ordained Seventh-day Adventist pastor in Korea. His son, my grandfather, also entered the pastoral ministry, and he became the first native Korean to become president of the Korean Union Conference. His son, my father, did not enter the ministry but he attended Seventh-day Adventist schools all the way until medical school, at which point he scored number one in the entire country on the national medical board exams while keeping Sabbath and skipping classes on Saturdays in a country which required attending class on the Sabbath. 
And that's when I come in. Because I was just four months old when my father and mother, two suitcases and a baby, showed up in Boston to pursue his residency. So while I'm a 1.5 generation Korean American immigrant, I am a fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist. The faith has been passed down to me from its earliest days in Korea. And while many blessings come from this history in the church, this spiritual heritage also comes with a predisposition to congenital Christianity. My earliest spiritual memory goes back to when I was just four years old. I would come downstairs early on Sunday mornings to watch television while my parents slept. It didn't take me long to notice that every Sunday, it seemed that every channel was broadcasting a church service, and I was totally perplexed by it. Even at that young age, I knew that Saturday is the Sabbath. This continued for some time until finally I decided that I would ask my mother what is going on here. I wanted to get to the bottom of this. And so I remember walking into the kitchen where my mother was doing the dishes and asking her, Amma, which means mommy in Korean, Amma, why are all these people going to church on Sunday? Don't they know that Saturday is the Sabbath? And without even looking up from the dishes she was doing, she replied, I don't know. And that was the end of it. Now, I don't know why she said, I don't know. Maybe she was too busy. She was a young mother of a four-year-old and two-year-old boys. Her husband was a medical resident working over 100 hours a week. That's a tough time. Maybe that's why. Maybe she was too busy. Or maybe she didn't want to take the time to explain it. Or maybe she just thought I was too young to understand a fuller explanation. I don't know what the reason was, but I remember walking away from that conversation totally confused. One of the primary risk factors for congenital Christianity is confusion. And from my earliest childhood experience, I was confused. And I did not receive clear instruction in the home. This is why the Lord in his divine wisdom told us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, which is Bible language for all the time. If you leave your children confused, even if they're in beginners or kindergarten or even primary, you increase their risk of congenital Christianity. You might think that they're too young to know or to understand or to care, but they are paying attention much more than you know. And you have the opportunity to give them the vaccine of a strongly biblical age-appropriate foundation or leave them dangerously exposed on the shifting sands of confusion. The ensuing years of my childhood and adolescence read like a textbook case of congenital Christianity. In the sixth grade, I was pulled out of our local Adventist school for two reasons. First, due to the excessive PDAs exhibited by the high school kids at the co-located academy. No, I am not talking about personal digital assistance. iPhones were not the problem. The problem was public displays of affection. And it had gotten to a point where my parents no longer felt comfortable having their fourth grade and sixth grade sons attending that school. The second reason was that the academics were not as challenging as I needed and I was becoming visibly bored in the classroom. So from sixth grade to high school, I was in the public schools, which was actually good for me academically. But my faith 
was assaulted from all sides continually. Specifically, my faith was under assault from the curriculum, from the extracurriculars, and from the peer pressure. Let's talk about all three. First, the curriculum. The curriculum was 100% secular and humanistic. From biology to English literature, I was exposed to the breadth of worldviews in which humanism was exalted and God was torn down. Now, don't get me wrong. I have a passion for witnessing to the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated, or the W3s of society. And as missionaries to these groups, we need to be able to speak that language and understand that culture But exposure to these worldviews can be dangerous if we are not well-grounded in the reality of God and the truth of his word. By beholding, you become changed. And if all you're beholding is Darwin, Kant, Rousseau, and Richard Dawkins, and you're not beholding Moses, Daniel, Paul, John, and the others, then you will be changed. At a minimum, you are setting yourself up for confusion, and more likely you will end up in outright apostasy or even atheism. So that was the curriculum, amen. That was the curriculum. But beyond the curriculum were the extracurricular activities, whether sports or clubs or arts or academics. It seemed that everything conflicted with the Sabbath. And I struggled greatly with these conflicts because my unconverted heart wanted to accomplish much in the world. And I believed that my success depended on worldly recognition rather than relying on the Lord. In my case, I was gaining success as a cellist. I was one of the best in the state of California. And I was considering a career in cello performance. A key part of establishing a track record in music is the competition, are the competitions. But time after time after time, I had to decline participation due to the Sabbath. It was an excruciating struggle in my teenage mind. And this struggle was compounded by the fact that individuals in our own Seventh-day Adventist church would encourage me to compete. There was a sweet older woman, one of the pillars of my local church and a strong supporter of the classical music scene. She knew of my talent as well as my struggles. I will never forget one Sabbath afternoon when she pulled me aside after the service and said, David, it would be okay, it would be okay for you to compete on the Sabbath because, one, you'd be playing good classical music. And that's a whole nother sermon. (laughs) But she said, I'd be playing good classical music, and two, that I would be glorifying God with my talent. I'm convinced that she meant well. But this well-intentioned church member was causing even more confusion for me and setting me up for compromise and ultimately setting me up for full-blown congenital Christianity. We would do well to recall Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him or her if a millstone were hung around her neck and she were drowned in the depths of the sea. You don't have to be blood-related to someone to inflame their congenital Christianity. You can even be a well-meaning church member, but be careful because you may make yourself a contributing factor to someone else's congenital Christianity, and may God have mercy on you if you do this. So we've talked about the curriculum and how it undermined my faith. 
We've talked about the extracurricular activities and how they created conflict in my heart. But the third and the most powerful force assaulting my faith during my formative years was the peer pressure. Beginning in the sixth grade through my peers, I was exposed to the range of filth and wickedness that we unfortunately consider a normal part of growing up. Between the school bus, the sleepover, the field trip, the cafeteria, the popular media, and various and sundry other settings, wherever I turned, Satan was there to teach me what things are pleasurable, what things are desirable, what things are required for social standing, what things are required for emotional fulfillment, what things are required for physical gratification, and ultimately what things are required for happiness. Now, I'm being a little bit delicate here because this is a family-friendly, G-rated sermon. But I hope you understand what I mean. Do you understand what I mean? Yes. In fact, from all I can gather from the news and media, it's even worse today. Seems that every day there's another sensational, salacious news story about what some young people did, who they did it to, when, where, and how often in the dorm room, in the frat house, in the locker room, on Facebook or Snapchat with a cell phone or with a webcam. Of course, there are exceptions. There are always exceptions. But for every person who manages to handle the peer pressure and emerge unscathed, an untold multiple of that number, see, hear, touch, taste, and inhale substances, images, media, and have myriad experiences which leave deep, mental, emotional, and even physical scars that will haunt them for the rest of their lives. There may be some of you right here in this hall who know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been there. You've done that. And you walk through life bearing the resulting guilt, shame, and fear. Satan uses these experiences and emotions to make you wonder if God is really there. And if God is there, if he cares... And if he cares, if he is even capable of delivering you from this body of death, Satan infiltrates your thinking and may even push you to the point where you would wish that God did not exist, where you would kill God in your own mind. Because if he did exist, and if he were as holy and as righteous and as just as, described in, as is described in the Bible, then you would surely be destined for nothing other than eternal loss. And so you take that point of view. It was with this mindset that I limped my way through high school. All of this hurt, shame, and confusion. Hidden behind a facade of perfect grades, musical accolades, and admission to world-class schools like Stanford University and the Eastman School of Music. I was chasing the world and doing extremely well by the world's standards. But all the while, I was ambivalent towards God, resentful towards his church, and completely spiritually ungrounded, cast adrift in a sea of worldliness and secularism. Against this backdrop, I went off to Eastman, and like any freshman, I was looking for a sense of belonging and affiliation. One of the places I looked for this was the local chapter of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, of course, there wasn't an Adventist group anywhere on campus, but it didn't matter to me because other than Sabbath keeping, I really didn't know the difference. 
I will never forget the first Bible study I attended. There were about 10 of us there, and it was led by a senior, a French horn player. His name was Drew. We went around the group introducing ourselves. Name, where you're from, uh, what you're studying, and any kind of spiritual background. When it came to my turn, a dialogue ensued, and it went something like this. Hi, my name's David Kim. I'm from San Luis Obispo, California. I'm here studying cello performance, and my spiritual background is Seventh-day Adventist. Drew says to me, Seventh-day Adventist, huh? That's kind of unusual. How'd you become a Seventh-day Adventist? And I said, well, my, my family's Adventist. I grew up Adventist, and I think the Bible's pretty clear that the seventh day is the day of worship. Drew says to me, huh, interesting. Well, um, how about Colossians 2.16? And I said to him, you mean John 3.16? <laughs> he said, no, Colossians 2.16. I said, Drew, you're going to have to help me out. Drew said, well, let's, let's all look it up. And in fact, today, let's look it up. Get out your Bibles. Let's look it up. Colossians 2.16. Uh, of course, uh, I was a good Seventh-day Adventist youth. I knew that Colossians was in the New Testament. Right after Philippians, Colossians 2.16. And when I found it, uh, Drew said, go ahead, David, read it, read it to the group. So I started to read. So I said, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or what does your Bible say? Sabbaths. And Drew looked at me with a look of triumph and he said, see, you people, by being so concerned with the Sabbath, are being legalists. Jesus freed us from the law. I will never forget that moment. I felt mortified as I read those words. I had never seen that verse in my life, and I had no clue what to think. You would think that someone who grew up in our church, a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist, would have understood the difference between ceremonial Sabbath and the Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment. But as you've just heard, I did not learn about this growing up, so I felt confused, betrayed, and humiliated. And by the way, if you don't understand what I just said, you need to talk to your pastor. I never went back to that Bible study and I stopped going to church. My congenital Christianity had metastasized. And while I never gave up on the idea of God, I had no idea who he was, what to believe, or what church was the right one. I was spiritually bewildered and I checked out of church completely. The next 14 years were a blur. I was in hot pursuit of worldly success and I was succeeding. Over that period of time, I earned bachelor's and master's degrees in cello performance with honors, and I performed all over the world. I earned an MBA, and I worked at some of the most prestigious companies in capitalism. And in the personal front, I, I married my beautiful wife, and I had two precious children. I felt like I had achieved the American dream. My house did not have a white picket fence, but I had a solar-heated swimming pool. And frankly, I'll take the pool. Over the years, the Lord had drawn me back into the church. I met and married my wife while going to church in Chicago. And I was even serving as an elder when we moved out to California. But I was not yet heart converted. I was still as confused about our message as ever. My theology and lifestyle were still a mess. I was prideful, covetous, and ambitious for worldly things. God and church was something I did for my children just in case it was true. But I was consumed with the world. 
To top it all off, I had been diagnosed and was suffering with a rare degenerative bone condition in both of my hips. And I was suffering through multiple unsuccessful surgeries. For 10 years, I walked with some combination of crutches, canes, and pain medications. I don't have these today, as you can see. Praise the Lord. But at the time, as far as I could tell, God had left me to suffer on my own through these things, and I was angry with him. Yet through all of this, God was trying to reach me. There would be times at church when I would hear a song, a testimony, or a sermon, and my heart would be touched, and my eyes would fill with tears, but I would quickly wipe them away as inconspicuously as possible, hoping that no one had noticed what had happened. In these moments, I knew that the Holy Spirit was trying to reach me, but I refused to yield to his promptings. I was still too proud, too angry, too consumed with the world, and I didn't know God much, much less trust him. I didn't understand the Bible and its message. It didn't make any sense to me. I was congenitally Christian, but my heart was unconverted. It was in this spiritual context that I was sitting in a church board meeting. Remember, I was an elder. It was spring 2008, and we were discussing putting on our first prophecy seminar in over a decade. The pastor was emphasizing the need for every member to attend all the meetings to support. And I remember thinking to myself, hmm, so pastor, what you're saying is you want me to come to church five nights a week for five weeks to listen to preaching? Who has time for that? I don't have time. I'll, I'll, Pastor, I'll go to church on, on the weekend parts, like the parts on the Sabbath, like Friday evening, well, Saturday morning for sure, because I'll be here anyway. But I'm not going to go five nights a week for five weeks. I tell you what I'll do, Pastor. I'll write you a check. I'll financially support the meetings. But I'm not going to attend on my own. I mean, I'm not going to attend. Little did I know that God had other plans for me. Come November, instead of being busy with work, I had been told that I needed to find a new job. This came as a total shock to me. But like many others, I was caught in the undertow of the global financial crisis. So the bad news was that I had to look for a new job during one of the worst financial crises in history. But the good news was that I had plenty of time to attend the meetings. And I thank God for that opportunity to hear the entire gospel message in a systematic way. As the evangelist unfolded the message step by step, night after night, I saw for the very first time the logic, coherence, and reliability of the Bible and our gospel message. For the first time, I could cut through all the cliches and assumptions tied up with our Christian faith. And I could see that God is real and that the Bible can be trusted. For the very first time, God was real to me because for the first time, he made perfect sense. And I had two immediate thoughts. My first thought was, wow, this is, this is really true. And my second thought was, well, if this is true, I better do something about it. And my life has never been the same. The Lord has put me on the road to recovery, and I haven't looked back. Amen. Amen. On the job search front, God was faithful. In the middle of the worst job market in a generation, he provided me not just one, not just two, not just three, four, five, but six excellent job opportunities. 
one of which took me to the Philadelphia area where I lived before recently moving to Tokyo about eight months ago. And as I embarked on a new job in a new place where I didn't know anybody, it is as if God gave me a clean sheet opportunity to start my life again. And I purposed in my heart to be faithful to God in all aspects of my life, both personal and professional, to bring my authentic faith to everything I do each day. And it has made all the difference. I have a regular devotional life. I'm praying more. I'm studying the Bible and the spirit of prophecy more than I ever did before. The Lord is teaching me how to have spiritual conversations with those around me. He has taught me how to approach these conversations in a natural way. The Lord is teaching me how to turn spiritual conversations into personal Bible studies. The Lord has given me opportunities to study with a wide range of spiritual and educational backgrounds from atheists to agnostics to Buddhists and evangelicals to PhDs, MBAs, lawyers, MDs, and others. The Lord is teaching me what it means to be a godly husband and father. The Lord is teaching me how to love my wife as Christ loves the church, being willing to give myself for her and treating her as a member of my own body. The Lord is teaching me how to be the priest of my household and leading my family in prayer, morning and evening. I am by no means perfect, but I am better than I used to be. And by the grace of God, I'll be more like Jesus every day, day by day, faith to faith, and from glory to glory. So what about you? What about you? Are you suffering from congenital Christianity? Is your religious experience dry, barren, formulaic? Do you feel as if your path in Christianity was predetermined for you by a genealogical heritage from your parents or your grandparents? Or perhaps you came later to the faith but you've lost your first love. I have good news for you because you too have the opportunity. In fact, you have the obligation to make your own decision for Christ, your own decision for revival. You cannot be saved by your parents' faith. You cannot be saved by your husband or your wife's faith. You cannot be saved by your graduating class. Andrews University can grant you a degree, but it cannot grant you salvation. The choice is up to you. The cure is readily available to you. Jesus is waiting for you. He's at the door. He wants to come in. He wants to destroy the congenital Christianity running through your veins and replace it with his saving blood. Jesus knows your heart. He knows your confusion, your hurt, your guilt, your shame, your resentment. He knows all these things. He knows everything about you, but he still wants you. You felt him tugging at your heart. You felt the desire to respond to his precious gift. If only you could believe, if only you could see past whatever barrier is blocking you from your savior. If only you could believe that Jesus could reach down and touch your heart and make it new. Make all things new. I have an appeal for this morning, a very specific appeal. And my first appeal is this. If you can relate to the 
congenital Christianity experience that I have shared with you from my own life, if you can relate to that, I'd like you to raise your hand. Raise it high and keep it up. If you can relate to my experience, please raise your hand. Raise your hand. Thank you very much. Keep your hand up. If you can relate to my congenital Christianity experience. Now, if you have your hand up, if you believe that you're suffering from congenital Christianity today, then I want you to stand up. I plead with you, stand up today. If you are under congenital Christianity today, then confess it before the Lord and stand up right where you are. Just stand up. If you are suffering from congenital Christianity today, then stand up. Stand where you are. Praise the Lord for your honesty. Pray, and please stand up if you're suffering from congenital Christianity today then stand up because you cannot be cured if you cannot even admit it. Praise the Lord. Now, for those of you who are standing up, here's my third and final appeal. For those of you who are standing, if you want to be cured of congenital Christianity today, if you want to ask the Lord to change your heart, then come to the front. Come to the front. If you want the Lord to cure you of your congenital Christianity today, then come to the front. You're already standing. You've already confessed before the Lord that you have this dread disease. Why would you want to continue to live with it? Come to the front as we sing the first stanza of the Savior is waiting. As we sing the first stanza of the Savior is waiting, please come to the front, number 289. And let's bring it up on the screen if we could. The Savior is waiting. Please come to the front as we sing this first stanza and come in closer to make room for the others. Lord God, our Father, our Heavenly Father, the one who loves us, hallowed be your name. You are so merciful, so gracious. See your children here. Those of us who have come forward, we have confessed our congenital Christianity and we want to let you come in, perhaps for the very first time. Or for others, perhaps they had come to you before, but they have drifted away. Lord, heal your people. Let this not be just a one-time response to an appeal, but Lord, let this be the first day of each and every one of our eternal life. The first day of our eternal life, Lord. And Lord, there are some here who have stood, yet did not come forward. I don't know why, but you do. And Lord, I would plead with you on their behalf. Just like you didn't let me alone, you pursued me. Don't let any one of these alone. Keep knocking on the door to their hearts until they open the door and let you come in. And Lord, there are some here who are enjoying the abundant life and walking with you. And Lord, for those people, I praise you. And Lord, for those people, I also plead that even if we are walking with you today, that doesn't mean that we will always walk with you. And so Lord, for those, I pray that you would continue to work upon their hearts so that they would always cooperate with you in living the life that you desire us to live. And that all of us here would be together and have been cured when we see Jesus come through the clouds in glory. We pray this in the powerful, 
and precious and gracious and loving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.